Shalad and I uh, welcome to Richards. And uh, if you notice at the bottom of your uh, uh, notice sheet, you'll see there's a blue tearaway slip. And uh, in a first for our church, I've written my own this week um, from last week. After, uh, if you remember, we, we got a bit confused with how many groups of people uh, there were, and nobody was kind enough, or you know, or the other one, uh, to, uh, to put anything in the the box asking about that. Uh, but I mentioned that there were six groups of people uh, that were mentioned uh, in chapter 6, verse 15. And when I counted them out on my fingers, there were seven of them. And uh, it all went a bit confusing. So let me just explain what's going on there. Um, it was a translation issue. So verse 15 says, Then the kings of the earth, the great ones and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free. You can either do that, as so like the NIV has it, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich and the mighty, and everybody else, both slave and free, so that adds up to six. Or you can have it like the New King James Version, which has it, uh, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, which adds up to seven. If it's six, then it's to do with humankind. Um, so sixth day, the, the day that we were made, one short seven, the idea of imperfect, uh, unholy, um, if that's the idea of it's six, if it's seven, then it's more the idea of all of humanity. So it's taking up the whole uh, of the group, all people. I'll leave it up to you to decide uh, which one you want to go with. Just as we start in our passage this week, though, I want to give the same caveat as last week. There may be some things that you find uh, this week that you disagree with here. Um, the exact identity, for example, of the first group of people that we'll talk about. And there are good Christians on both sides of this discussion. Um, so, as I said last week, let's be loving to one another as brothers and sisters. But again, if you want to chat with me about it, if you think that it's something different, uh, then come and show me it from the text, and uh, we can chat that through. So let's dig in. Let me pray as we start. Father God, help us. Open our eyes, we pray, to your uh, words. Father, help us to understand that we might know you and love you better and serve you better. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Well, last week, the big question was when. That was the topic we were looking at. When are the events that we're reading about taking place? And we said that it's from the time of Jesus' death and resurrection right up until the end. This week, the big question that we've got before us is who? Who are we talking about here? The question was left with us at the end of last week's passage. So Revelation 6 verse 17. The great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That was the question we were left with. In light of God's big judgment that he said was coming, who can stand? And chapter 7 is given really to answer that question. These are the people who will be left standing on judgment day. These are the people who will not face God's anger and judgment. These are the people who will live with God forever in paradise. So in fact, even though our passage seems quite confusing before us, actually it's answering one of life's ultimate questions. Who goes to heaven? Who gets there? Is it everyone? Is it just a select few? Is it everyone except a select few? If it's not everyone, what decides what who gets in? Is it our moral behaviour? Is it our ethnicity? Or is it just at random? Our passage this morning answers those questions. And as it does so, it reminds our original readers who they are. And as we look at this passage, we're going to learn something about our own identity as Christians. 
If you're not a Christian here this morning, then you'll see by uh, the end what God has to say about who actually gets in to heaven. The chapter starts with a sort of flashback in verse 1. It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, um, and that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Four angels are holding back four winds, referring back to the destruction of creation in chapter 6. It's clearly a flashback because the things that they're holding back to stop them from destroying were destroyed in chapter 6. Here are the people, though, that will escape the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and of the Lamb. This is why they escape. This is the answer to that question. So who are they? Well, first of all, they're the servants of God. Have a look at verses 2 and 3. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. John sees an angel ascending from the east, the direction of God's glory in the Old Testament, always comes from the east. And in his hand he's got a seal, the seal of God. Now to avoid confusion, the seal of God is not like the Lamb of God. This confused me as a seven-year-old. I remember reading the book of Revelation and thinking about a seal. And how does that... It's a seal as in a stamp, not as in an animal. Um, the seal refers to a stamp, a sort of ownership brand that the Lord puts on these people. So in my books upstairs in the library, there's a stamp on those books that says that they are mine. If you have any of those books, I would like them back at some point. Because that's what it means to say. The stamp on them means that they're mine. That's why you need to return them to me. But these are not books, though. These are people. And they receive the stamp of the Lord on their forehead. It's as though God's saying, this one is mine. They belong to me. They are under my protection, says the Lord. And as you might expect, this idea with Revelation comes from the Old Testament. It's from Ezekiel chapter 9, where an angel goes through Jerusalem and seals all those who sigh and groan over the abominations that were committed in Jerusalem. That's the background in Ezekiel 9. And that group are protected while the rest are destroyed. And that's the same idea here. Well, what is the seal that they're sealed with? We're told elsewhere in scripture, so in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Same language in Ephesians 4, same language in 2 Corinthians 1. So this group here, these servants, are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He is God's authentic mark of ownership. It's God saying, these people are mine. And he is the guarantee that God will bring them safely home. In scripture, it's also the spirit who groans, that same word as we were talking about before, groans within us. So that it even fits in with the Old Testament idea of sealing. So the seal, it, it, it's, it's the idea of God owns them. It's even talked about having God's name written on their forehead. It reminds me of a Toy Story. If you've ever seen Toy Story, uh, we have to watch it with the kids periodically. Uh, on the bottom of all the toys, they've got written Andy. And it reminds them that there are Andy's toys. Well, God has put his name on our foreheads, it's saying here, spiritually. They are mine, he's saying. 
So the people here are sealed. And they're referred to in verse 3 as the servants of God. Literally it says the slaves of God. But translations don't like using that word so much. This is the way that Paul refers to himself in so many of his letters in verse 1. And also James refers to himself in James 1 verse 1. And Peter refers to himself in 2 Peter 1 verse 1. And in fact, this is also the way that John has referred to himself in Revelation 1 verse 1. So if you look back over Revelation 1 verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things which soon must take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So John sees this as a phrase that talks about himself as well. It's also the phrase that he comes back to at the end, when we're looking at the end of time, when we're looking at the new creation, when we're looking at glory at the end. Revelation 22, 3 and 4, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. This is the same group, isn't it, there, in the New Jerusalem, worshipping the Lamb, still bearing their... God's name on their forehead, still bearing the seal. So who are these people? Well, John looks around and he sees, verse 9, After this I look, and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. He looks around and that's what he sees. Now, most of you are thinking, well, hang on, what about verse 4? We're expecting you to follow on from verse 3 to verse 4. You're expecting me to read, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. But actually, that's what he hears, if you read it. I heard the number of those sealed. What he actually sees is verse 9, when he looks round, is that multitude that no one can count. It's an echo back to chapter 5, if you were here with us for chapter 5. In chapter 5, John hears from the elders that the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And he looks round for the lion, and what does he see? He sees a lamb. And here in chapter 7, John hears that there are 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, but when he looks round, he sees an innumerable crowd made up of all nations. So we're not supposed to see these things as two separate things, two separate groups. It's actually two ways of looking at the same group. Not two groups, but one group from the same, from different perspectives. Like Christ is not a lamb and a lion separately, it's not two different people, it's one person from two perspectives. So one way of looking at the church is like the olive tree that Paul talks about in Romans 11. A sort of continuation of believing Israel with the Gentiles grafted into it. Not two separate trees, but one tree. Still Israel, but made up of Jew and Gentile. That's why books like James can be addressed to, in James 1 verse 1, the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Who are the twelve tribes? Does the book of James not apply to Gentiles, to non-Jews? Or is it just another way of talking about the church? Same goes for 1 Peter, he writes to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. The dispersion is the exile. So is 1 Peter just written to Jews in exile, or is it written to all believers? 
What does Paul mean in Philippians 3 when he says that we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ? So this group here of Israelites that we see is really another way of looking at the church. And I'm not saying here that the church has replaced Israel, as though God has sort of done a swap. He's not ditched the Jews entirely just um, and just saving Gentiles now, no. What I'm saying is that one way of looking at the church is as a sort of idealised Israel. After all, the church of Christ is the seed of Abraham, isn't it? Galatians 3, 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So he's saying Abraham's children, they're the ones that have faith like Abraham. And after all, Abraham was promised that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars of the sky, as the sand on the beach. Which actually sounds more like that second image, doesn't it, of the innumerable people. So the promises given to his Abraham, uh, to Abraham and his offspring don't just apply to Jewish people here, do they? They actually go to the nations. I'm laboring this point because there's so much confusion about what's described here. And this is one of the places where I genuinely think that we miss out on the meaning if we take the group in verses 4 to 8 as non-symbolic. Why do I think the Jewishness is symbolic? Well, let me give you three quick reasons. I could give you more. Firstly, because the tribes are wrong. So if you look down the tribes, I won't read them all out to you, but you might notice that there are some strange things happening here. Firstly, the tribe of Dan is missing. Joseph is mentioned, but then so is his son Manasseh, which is a bit weird, because normally Joseph is just counted as one tribe or two tribes, but here it's sort of... The list just isn't quite right. So it would be like talking about the United Kingdom and saying the four parts of the United Kingdom, England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Yorkshire. That would be, that'll be the equivalent of what he's done here. Chris, Chris, why do you pick on Wales? <laughs> <laughs> Wales just often get pissed off the maps, doesn't they, when they, they put it there. But yeah, but you'd be thinking, where's Wales? And isn't Yorkshire part of England? If you were Jewish and reading this, that's the sort of question you'd be asking. Why Dan? Well, there are competing theories, but interestingly, he's virtually missed out on one chronicles, uh, and his tribes aren't listed there. Some suggested that his tribe had gone by that point. But actually, if you think about it, all, well, nearly all the tribes have gone by this point anyway. The ten missing tribes from the Old Testament are still missing. That sneaky reason 1.5 why it's not the Jews, because there is no tribe of Simeon anymore. There is no tribe of Zebulun. They're not around. The, the Jews are the, uh, the descendants of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. So, we don't know why Dan isn't there for sure, but there's something wrong about this list that means that it, it doesn't quite add up as literal Jews. The second reason they're not literally Jewish is because they're the only ones mentioned in the New Jerusalem in chapter 22. This is why Jehovah's Witnesses believe only 144,000 people are going to heaven. They don't take the Jewishness literally, but then again, they don't take the rest of the info that we're told about this group in chapter 14. Namely, that they're all male, all virgins, and all blameless. But they do take the number literally and view them as a separate group. But if they are a separate group, why would that they make it in and not believers of any nationality? I would argue that it is only the sealed servants of God that are in the New Jerusalem, but I take that to be every believer. 
Finally, because of the number, that's the third reason, there are 144,000. Now, my kids are really into maths, and uh, I'm hoping not to get my maths wrong here, um, but 144,000, if I'm right, is 12 times 12 times 1,000. We've already come across the idea in Revelation that 12 is symbolic for God's people, like the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles. The 24 elders, for example, that we've mentioned, are 12 plus 12. Well, here is 12 times 12 times 1,000. And just in case we've missed the connection to the 12 tribes, he gives us 12 tribes and tells us that there's 12,000 from each one of them. Just in case you've made 144,000 a different way, like 6 times 24 or something like that. hope that's right. A thousand we've come across without knowing. We've come across ten, which meant some. Well, this is ten times ten times ten. So if ten was some, like in the ten days of tribulation in chapter two, then this is a lot more. Hundred would be a lot. This is an awful lot, a thousand. So here we have an awful lot of God's people, told to us in symbolic language through the numbers. An awful lot of God's people. And then John helpfully shows us an awful lot of God's people in 9 to 14. But before we get there, before we look at the big crowd, what if we're right here? What, what if this is just another way of God talking about his people? What is it telling us about his people? Well, it's telling us here that all of God's people will be there. That God sees us here as, as a perfect number, if you like, just the right number of people. And that God sees us as blameless and pure and authentic children. All of us. And all of us stand there made faultless by the Lamb. It's like this is a picture of the perfect church of God. It's almost as though this is God's looking on the church and this is how he sees the church. A God's eye view on the church. That's what we see in these tribes. What God sees in the church. But then we get really what is actually going on. The real picture behind it. So what's the other angle? Well, that the people who stand on the day of the wrath of the Lamb are from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Let me read through verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John sees an innumerable crowd, as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. We're supposed to have Abraham ringing in our ears after what we've read before. But they're not physical descendants of Abraham. Instead, they're from every nation, tribe, people and language. But isn't that also part of our Abraham imagery? Abraham was told in Genesis 12, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that he would be the father of a multitude of nations, that's Genesis 17. Well here are those many nations, here are those families of the earth standing before the throne. Not just Israelites, not just Brits, not just Americans, not just Europeans. People from all over the world, from Turkey to Trinidad, from uh, York to New York, from Sumi uh, to Cyprus as well. I think we've got most of these represented this morning when I've tried. From New South Wales to just plain old South Wales. (laughs) (laughs) 
But it's across the globe, it's everyone. They're so different in all those different ways, and yet they have some things in common. They have white robes. We're told that they've been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb in verse 14. Some of us are so familiar with that imagery that we've forgotten what it means. They're considered clean and pure because God has been at work. God has done something. Not because of their good works, not because of the shedding of their own blood, but because Jesus shed his blood. That's the blood of the Lamb. And only those who've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb will be here in heaven. That's what he's saying. That is the dress code of heaven, if you like. So many people think they'll get in by their own robes. You know, sort of like when I was a student, you know, you used to judge your clothes by picking them up off the floor and sort of give them a bit of a sniff and think, well, they'll do, you know, for the day. Some people think, you know, oh, you know, that'll do. It's fine. But no one is clean enough by themselves. No one is here who doesn't need their robes washed. And only the blood of Christ can make them clean. That's what he's saying. They have palm branches in their hands. It's a throwback, really. You might think it to be the New Testament, but it's the Old Testament again. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, or Booths in Leviticus 23. They were there, they were to rejoice for the first time when they went into the land, rejoice that they were no longer in their tents. Zechariah 14 also prophesied that all nations would come and celebrate the Feast of Booths together after the great plagues of the earth were over. Well, here they are. Celebrating together the Feast of Booths. Their time in tents is over. They have a home and they can celebrate. We're told also um, that they come out of the Great Tribulation in verse 14. Let me read that to you again. I said to him, sir, you know, he said, these are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They're coming out of the Great Tribulation. Now there's no need to get ourselves caught up in that phrase. John uses the word great which is the Greek word mega, big, over 60 times in the book. That's a third of all the times it's used in the New Testament. It's one of his favourite words. Tribulation, though, he only uses four times. And normally, I swear, it's translated just affliction or sufferings. As when Paul boasts in his afflictions, or we're told that our sufferings produce perseverance. Same word. Well, the four times he uses it in Revelation, twice he refers to it as great tribulation. Here and when speaking to his followers, uh, the followers of Jezebel and Thyatira. So in chapter 2, verse 22, he says this. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her words. We don't think of it there as a sort of specific period, do we? But it's the same phrase. He mentions ten days of tribulation for the church in Smyrna as well. The other time he uses it is when he calls himself their brother and partner in the tribulation, in chapter 1, verse 9. So it's more likely that he refers to it as the great tribulations in terms of this big suffering that we undergo in the world. He's saying that the people who have suffered on earth for their faith will be there at rest in heaven. He's saying that part of their identity is that they've suffered on earth, which is what we see with believers across the globe, isn't it? And finally, what we see is that they have a song, verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's the first time the word has been used in Revelation, salvation, save, saviour. This is the song of the saved, the song of the rescued. They've been rescued by the Lamb, and that's what they sing about. 
That's the theme of their song. Now they word it in a way that I might not have worded it in my head. I think I want to go salvation belongs. I'm thinking of the song that we're going to sing at the end. Um, salvation belongs to me. Um, you know, I'm saved. But they sing salvation belongs to our God. It's His salvation. It's His rescue. As I keep saying through the weeks, worship is about Him and His worthiness. It's not really about us in that sense. And as the saints sing, as the saints sing, the angels join in around the throne in verses 11 and 12. And as you might expect now with the angels, they ascribe things. They ascribe blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honour, power and might. Seven things. Complete, perfect, everything. Different seven to the last time they did that, but the point is the same. Because God has saved his people, all honour is due to him. All everything is due to him. And then the vision finishes with what will happen to the people that he has saved. So finally, these people will be with God forever. Let me read to you verses 15 to 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The chapter finishes with this lovely section taken from various passages in Isaiah, and also Psalm 23. It's allusions to what life will be like in eternity. And it starts with a therefore. Do you notice? Because they have been given white robes, washed in the blood of the Lamb, now they will serve in his temple. It's because of what Christ has done that they're there. King David finally gets his wish to dwell in the house of the Lord all his days. In Psalm 23 verse 6 he wrote this, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well here is David dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. But it's no brick or wood building that could hold a few hundreds. Revelation 21 tells us that there's no temple in the city, because God himself, the Almighty and the Lamb, are its temple. The temple is where God dwells, and here the whole earth will be his temple. And the people there will serve him day and night. The word there for serve is slightly different from the one in verse 3. It's liturgio, where we get our word liturgy from. It's like a sort of priestly word. It's what priests do. They're performing priestly duties. Sheltered by the Lord's presence. Speaking of the Lord's servant, Isaiah writes, They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. But he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water he will guide them. He's saying in eternity, in this, this new heavens and new earth, there's no hunger. There's no thirst. There's no scorching heat. I think we Brits sometimes find that hard to understand, don't we? When it says no scorching heat, we go places for scorching heat, don't we? But when you've had a hot week like this week, you sort of feel it a bit more, don't you, when you just can't get cool. Uh, actually, here the promise is that actually no scorching heat. Why? Why will we have these blessings? Because the Lamb will be our shepherd, that's what we're told. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. David, the Lord's my shepherd. John, the Lamb's my shepherd. 
And you're thinking, hang on, a lamb? They can't be a shepherd, can they? How can a lamb be a shepherd? Well, they can in the book of Revelation. That's how it works. He just messes with these images and throws them around. And the lamb here is pictured on a throne, literally in the centre of the throne. That's what the mitzvah means there. I mean, how do you spin this into the idea of Jesus being a mere man and not God? I have no idea. Because here he is in in the centre place of history, in the command centre of the world. So let's ditch the idea the Bible doesn't say Jesus is God. Even here is enough, isn't it? Here's Jesus in the centre of the throne. And it turns out that the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, is a shepherd. A good shepherd. Like the Lord God himself in Ezekiel 34. A good shepherd who's also one of the sheep. God and man. He's a good shepherd because he leads his people to streams of living water. Psalm 23 verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. There are still waters. Here it's living waters. That's from Jeremiah 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, who forsake all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. This shepherd leads us to himself and bids us drink. Just as he did with the woman of the well in John 4. He is the streams of living water that we need to come to. And he is the shepherd who brings us there. And whilst there'll be streams of living water, there'll be no streams of tears. Speaking of the great feast at the end, Isaiah writes, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? No suffering, no pain, no hunger, no thirst, no death. This is what is ahead for the servants of God. Those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, regardless of the mistakes that they've made or haven't made, regardless of their ethnicity or background, however hard things have been in this world, they will be there. So be encouraged. If you've washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb, you will be there with the Lord Jesus forever. If you've come to him for cleansing and forgiveness, you will be there. So the big question this morning becomes then, Have you? Have you come to him for cleansing and forgiveness? Have you put your trust in the cleansing power of his death on the cross in your place? Or are you still thinking, well, I'm I'm fine as I am, I can do without him. Come to the Lamb for cleansing. Be there on that glorious day. Stand on that glorious day before the Lamb, rather than facing the rock of the Lamb. Who can stand? Well, I pray that we'll all be found faultless by the Lamb on that day because of his blood and righteousness. And on that day we'll declare salvation belongs to our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful picture that we have here. Father, thank you that there is coming a day when we can enjoy that time with no suffering, no pain, no tears. And it's not because of things that we have done, but because of what the Lord Jesus has done. Father, help us to worship him forever. In Jesus' name. Amen.